and start asking the praise team to do more songs that allow me to walk out on the stage to applause. It's a fun thing. Good morning. My name is James Green. I'm the teaching pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. If you've been with us and kind of dialed in since the beginning of the year, you know that we're walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. So if you would, grab your Bibles. Let's jump into Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start walking through verses 11 to 15 today. The rest of this chapter in chapter 2 shows Paul dealing with a conflict. This could get a little awkward for some of us. There, There are people who just want to avoid conflict at all times. But this is why we walk through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You don't get to skip anything when you do it that way. Here Paul catches our friend Peter doing something goofy. And it results in a bunch of people doing something goofy. And because this thing that Peter does has these serious repercussions, and because what Peter is really doing is messing with the gospel, Paul can't let this go. So he gets in Peter's face about this one. That's how passionate Paul is about the gospel. Before we jump in, I want to do just a quick review of what we've seen up to this point, and then a little preview of where we're going, what's going to happen in the rest of this letter. And you know, the deal is we're dealing with the true gospel. We're looking at the one authentic gospel. That's the reason that Paul's writing this letter in the first place. And what we see is these people in the churches in Galatia, they were confused about the gospel. But they weren't confused all by themselves. They had somebody who was coming along and helping to confuse them. There's this group of Judaizers that was coming in. And what they were teaching was, hey, we know Paul says you can be saved by faith alone. But we're pretty sure it's faith plus some other stuff. It's faith and you have to keep the law and you have to be circumcised, and you have to obey these dietary restrictions. You need to do that kind of stuff. And we see this just fires Paul up because he is so passionate about the gospel of grace. Paul's deal is salvation is available by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by keeping the law. So in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul introduces a guy to us named Titus. And Titus really is a guinea pig. He's just a test case. Paul wants to bring him before the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and say, hey, here's a guy who's a Gentile who accepted Christ, he received grace, and and now he's a Christ follower, but he didn't have to be circumcised. And sure enough, those guys agree that that's right. That's the way that that happens. And right after that, Paul and Peter kind of get their marching orders. Paul's going to be the missionary to the Gentiles, and Peter's going to go and continue sharing the gospel with the Jews. And that brings us right up to this text we're going to look at today actually over the next couple weeks, because the entirety of this passage all the way through chapter 2 is Paul's kind of final proof of his independence as an apostle. And in this passage today, we're going to see he's so independent, he's willing to publicly rebuke one of the other apostles when he messes with the gospel. But I also want to give a little preview of where we're going, because I'm really, really proud of you guys. There's so many of you who have been following along through the book of Acts. You're seeing what Paul is doing here. And you're coming and you're asking me these great observation questions as we study this letter together. And one of the big questions that people keep coming to me with is this one. Hey, why does Paul hate the law? Seems like Paul really, really hates it. He bashes law keeping all the time. Are we supposed to just throw the law out? Or is Paul being too extreme here? And I think it's a fantastic question. And we're headed in the direction of answering it, I promise it. Really even starting next week. Because Paul introduces a new term to us. It's the word justification. And so we ask that question, can we be justified by keeping the law? Now, if you remember and you're here at the very first message, the overview I did of Galatians, I said this letter is all about understanding grace. And one of the ways that we'll really be able to do that is try and figure out, well, then what's the relationship between the law and grace? And to do that, we've got to study. 
we're going through this process where we have observation, then interpretation, then correlation, and then finally application. And if we get all of them up to application and then stop, then we've shot ourselves in the foot because this is all about applying it. The issue we look at today where Peter goofs up, Peter doesn't change his theology. He messes up in his application. And it's huge. It has these damaging results. So the question is, does Paul hate the law? No, not at all. Paul just understands the relationship between the law and grace. He's going to make that so clear. Paul doesn't hate the law. He just loves the gospel. He was saved by grace through faith after years of trying to earn it. And so he's a guy who's just blown away by grace, blown away by the reality of the gospel. Now, we've walked several times through what the gospel is. It's this amazing good news that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe through no work of our own. Because of grace, it was set free on the cross, it's motivated by God's love and mercy, we can be justified. We can be right with God, but not by keeping the law. Not by trying to be a good person. Only because God is willing to make a trade with us. He wants to let us swap our sinful lives where we know that the wages of our sin is death. He'll let us trade that. And Jesus will take it and he'll take the wrath of God upon himself. And he'll go to the cross and he'll die in our place and he'll rise again. He'll conquer sin and death. Establish a kingdom that will never end if we take that trade. If we respond to the grace with faith, then when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. We have to make that trade. Then we get viewed with that sinless perfection. And one of the big sticking points to the gospel, if you present that to somebody, one of the things they're going to say for sure is, but I didn't earn it. Right. (laughs) That's the deal. Paul is huge on this because he tried to earn it. He was as good as you could get, and he couldn't do it. And then God revealed to him, it doesn't work that way. So now Paul is so passionate about the gospel, he won't tolerate anybody messing with him. He gets upset with the Judaizers, not because he hates the law, but because he loves the gospel. Here in this text today, he has these issues with Peter, not simply because Peter does something wrong, but because what he does ends up messing with the gospel. Now in the coming weeks, Paul's going to explain more clearly what role the law does have how we're supposed to apply what he's teaching. But I'm going to give you the preview. It's basically this. The law was designed for a purpose. The Old Testament law has a clear role in our lives when we let it do what it's supposed to do. Now, where we get in trouble with the law, where anybody gets in trouble with the law, is when we ask it to do something that it wasn't designed to do. So in chapters 3 and 4, Paul's going to show these Judaizers We're trying to get the Old Testament law to do something it was never designed to do. Paul's main point always is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. The law does not, the law cannot provide salvation. So we shouldn't be asking it to do something that it can't do. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul's going to show that when we apply the gospel to our lives, it should produce lives that are godly. He calls it keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. We should have these lives of abundance and freedom in Christ, which again, just keeping the law doesn't do. Now I know, even sitting out in the room today, there's so many different learning styles. There are probably so many ways to illustrate this. So I tried to come up with a couple that I hope will help us better grasp what Paul's trying to show us here. And so to do that, I want to show just a real short little video, and I want to tell on myself a little bit, I have a guard dog. 
have a watchdog at my house because I'm that kind of guy that wants to protect my house and protect my family. So I want to give you just a little glimpse into how ferocious my guard dog is if you'll watch this video. This is my house. He's not a real big dog. <laughs> He's actually about the size of my cat. I don't think I'd ask my cat to guard my house, would I? Here's the deal. For, for some reason, my dog Gunner, when we got him, he has this deep-seated hatred of the door. I don't know why he does that. It's not even just the doorbell. Like, if somebody comes to the door, he will bark like that. It's just ridiculous. And, and now, if I was home, yeah, he would alert me, and I could get up, and I'd defend my own house. But, but if I wasn't home, could I count on that dog to defend my house. I've heard that line before, oh, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Seriously? <laughs> Look at that dog. I, I don't think that's the deal. Fighting is not his role. Well, that's where the law is with Paul. Does the law have a role? For sure it does. We read the Old Testament law. Does it have the ability to ask me not to lie, not to steal, not to murder? Of course it does. Does it have the right to tell me I need to love God, not to covet? Sure. It has the right to make those requests of me and of you and everybody in the Bible. But it has no ability to save me. The law can't rescue me from my rebellion. That would be asking it to do something it's not designed to do. So what's the purpose of the law? Here's one way to think about it, and Paul will help us unpack this later. Years ago, about seven years ago, I started having a lot of trouble with my knees. Now, I've always been really heavy, but I've always been really active. I used to play a lot of basketball and baseball and softball and racquetball. And about seven years ago, it started really bothering me to the point where I was like, I'd do something and I'd be limping around. And I'm a guy, so I tried to suck it up for a long time. And I'm married, and so my wife made me go to the doctor. And I went and got an MRI. You guys know what an MRI is, this magnetic resonance imaging. They took a picture of the inside of my knee. And the MRI showed me that I have no cartilage. So it really wasn't a surprise <laughs> that I was having some issues, why I was limping around. I didn't have any cushion in here. But here's the deal with MRI. It revealed the big problem that I was having. But could the MRI cure me? From that point in time, could I have just had some regularly scheduled MRIs, got one every couple months, and I would have gotten better? No. See, the MRI is valuable, because it diagnoses my problem. It let me see what the real issue with my knee was. But the MRI was powerless to fix it. The MRI can't cure my problem. Well, that's how the law works. Is the law holy and divine? Yes, it was given by God. But we only see it correctly when we see the purpose that God intended for it. I think this is one of the big reasons that I know I have struggled. So many folks struggle with living abundant lives as Christ followers. We mess up, and we run back to the MRI <laughs> to get a picture of where we messed up instead of running to the cure, instead of running to the one person who can heal us. We all have this big issue. Ever since the fall of man, we're sinful people. What we need is a cure. Now, God is big enough and smart enough and loving enough 
to have provided one for us, but we've got to take the trade. We've got to receive grace and respond with faith in Christ to get it. It's just not enough for us to recognize our sin problem. I get a huge, big blow-up of an MRI that says, oh, look, there it is. There's my sin issue right there. But that doesn't cure it. It's just a diagnosis. So the law has a purpose. It shows us where we fall short. It shows us that we have a need for a Savior, but the law can't save us. So that's where Paul is. That's his take on it. He doesn't hate the law. He just loves the gospel. Paul doesn't hate the diagnostic. He's just so absolutely passionate about the cure. That's where he is. That's probably the longest intro ever for a sermon, but but that's where we are, and that's where we're going. And so let's jump in today here to Galatians chapter 2. We'll start in verses 11 to 13. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. He says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, this is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, these guys from Jerusalem, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Why? He was fearing the party of the circumcision. What happened? The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So after Paul comes to Jerusalem, he gets the right hand of fellowship from the big three. He gets going. He's out doing some ministry. At some point in time after this, there's no real clue from the context when Peter ends up in Antioch. Now Antioch is a big city. If you're thinking about Antioch, you'd think of it today like a, like a big town with a major sports team. They had the arena there. There's a huge library there. And Bible scholars will contend there's a big church in Antioch, and it was kind of split right down the middle. It was 50% Jewish Christians and 50% Gentile Christians. And again, we don't know exactly when this confrontation occurs. I'm sure it happened before the Jerusalem Council. But the notion is Paul had gone back to Antioch, and he's hanging out there, and everybody's together. All the Jewish and Gentile Christians mingle together. They're hanging out. And and what they are is they're fellowshipping. They're worshiping together. They're hanging out over common meals, and they're not obeying the Jewish dietary laws. This is a great show of unity. And so Paul leaves. He's out on the road. He's preaching somewhere, whatever he's doing. And And he comes back, and now all of a sudden, they're not hanging out together anymore. And Peter is there in Antioch. We don't know when he arrived, but we know he's been there long enough that his involvement, his role in the issue in this church split has been noticeable. Because even the verb tense that Paul uses indicates that Peter was part of that group, and then it was like a gradual split. Like at first he was hanging out with everybody, and then he he didn't just quit, he just kind of started pulling back. Because these guys from Jerusalem show up. It says they're from James. But I can't for a minute believe that James would actually be on board with what they're thinking. So this could just mean they're from Jerusalem and this statement recognizes James' reputation as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But these people show up and when they do, these folks in Antioch, Peter included, they're all together, they're fellowshipping together, but these folks from the circumcision party show up and they sit down and they won't have any part of it. They sit by themselves. And Peter notices this And he's scared of it. And so slowly, he starts to pull away from his Gentile buddies. And then after he does that, eventually he goes and he sits and he eats with these Jewish guys. And all the other Jewish people follow Peter. Until finally, now they'd all been together. But now there's a Jewish group of folks over here and a Gentile group of folks over here. If you've been to a high school cafeteria recently, this is no new news to you. 
You walk in and see these kind of divisions. There's groups all over the place. But this is a bigger deal in the text to me because it's logical to think that here in the church in Antioch, they probably observed communion with their common meals. So now this isn't just a racial thing or an ethnic thing. This is a worship thing. Church in Antioch was together before, but now they have this divided worship. So this is serious. I think we lose the magnitude of this for a couple reasons. And one is we just don't observe communion with our common meals. We don't see meals as worship. I get that. But I think the other reason we don't understand the gravity of this is we just don't live in a culinary culture like these first century Christians did. I mean, our whole deal on food is how fast can I get it? How cheap can I get it? How much can I get? And can I eat it in my car? Remember getting real excited when KFC came out with the Go Cup? I can get fried chicken in my car? Man, can I supersize it? I mean, you know, that's the kind of questions we ask. We don't knock out a big part of our day for meals anymore. But that wasn't the way back then. Paul's writing at a time when meals were the deal. I mean, if you sat down to eat with somebody, it had these huge societal and cultural implications. We know that for sure in Scripture, don't we? Because Jesus continually got a bad rap for this, didn't he? You look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We'll have these on the screen. This sets the scene for all of chapter 15, where Jesus tells those amazing parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. Here's what precedes that. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, that's Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So it's bad enough just to be seen with some sinners, but you didn't eat with them. No, you didn't. See, this is a huge misstep for Peter. Because when he first shows up in Antioch, what he's doing by sitting together and eating with the Gentiles, he's really saying something. He's saying, we're equals. He's saying, I don't see myself as superior to you. We both received grace in the same way. And you just know Peter's sitting there and he's eating some pork. You know it. They all ordered the Baconator value meal. And Peter's just living out this freedom he has in Christ to do that. Then it says these guys from the circumcision party shows up. That doesn't sound like a party to me. That never sounds good. And Peter gets nervous. He says, oh, what are these guys going to think? I think I'll skip the meat lover's omelet with my Gentile buddies today and I'll just stand back here. And then eventually he goes to where he's hanging out with the Jewish guys. Well, that's noticeable because Peter has started down this road of sharing the meal table, of sharing worship with these Gentile believers. He's spoken with his actions whether he ever said it or not. He's proclaiming we're all equal with his behavior. And so now when he starts to pull away, well, that's going to speak volumes too. Because these folks from the circumcision party, they showed up believing they were better than the Gentile believers. Simply because of their Jewish heritage, they thought they were better. And so Peter being afraid of them, Peter fearing them to the point where basically he withdraws and then joins with them, well, that just reinforces the view. That says now Peter thinks Jews are better than Gentiles. They're cleaner. They're more pure. That's what Peter is saying when he pulls away from the Gentiles. Now, seriously, if anybody should have had this figured out, it should have been Peter. Because Peter has some background with this very issue that he should have remembered here. But for whatever reason, he blanks on it. He forgets a key event that happened in his very own life. Keep your fingers there in Galatians, but flip back over to the book of Acts. Flip over to Acts chapter 10. For context, in the first nine chapters of Acts, things were a little bit simpler. 
because there were no Gentile Christ followers. Everybody who was a Christ follower was a Jew at that time. So there wasn't any worry over divisions. There were no arguments about whether somebody was circumcised or not. But here in Acts chapter 10, something amazing happens. An angel of the Lord appears to a guy named Cornelius. He lives in a city called Caesarea, which is a Roman city. He's a centurion in the Italian cohort, and the Bible says he's a pretty good guy. The Bible says he fears God, he prays continuously, he gives away a bunch of money to Jewish people, but here's the deal, he's not Jewish. He hadn't been circumcised, he's eating bacon. One day he's praying, and this angel speaks to him. And in Acts chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, this is what the angel tells him. He says, now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon. This is our friend Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. That's kind of all the direction Cornelius gets. But we jump in and we read this story, and we see at the same time this happens, here's our buddy Peter. He's on the roof over at Simon the tanner's house, and he has this incredible, this really cool vision. He sees what looks like a big sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet, there's a bunch of animals, unclean animals. Kind of animals a good Jewish guy would never eat. He wouldn't even touch because of the Jewish law, because of the dietary restrictions. But here's where it gets wild. Because Peter hears this voice. And in the context, we see that he knows whose voice it is. In verse 13, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I love this passage. Because this is just some classic Peter stuff here. Because Peter replies in verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. So Peter knows it's the Lord talking. But then, seriously, Peter, how many times are you going to argue with God? Learn from your mistakes, my brother. This is not going to go well for you. I've seen something at least similar to this in my house before. It's so funny. My wife is a math genius. She's got her master's in mathematics. She's, she's forgotten more math than I'll ever know, I guarantee. I got a boy in high school, a boy in junior high. They'll come home with their math homework, and they'll ask her to help. And so she'll be helping them, and she'll be showing them, like, you know, the very best way they could possibly do something, and they'll argue with her. Like, no, I don't think that's it. And I'll, I want to just go call time out and go over there and go, please, please just listen to her. I guarantee she's got this. I guarantee she knows more than you about this. But they don't want to listen for some reason. I feel like this is where Peter should be. I don't know. You know that, that get on board with kill and eat. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But since you're God, I guess I'll go ahead with it. That's not what Peter does here. Peter says, may it never be. And so God has to speak to him again. Hey, just trust me on this, Peter. Starting in verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Well, now Peter will get it, right? No. This happened three times. God has to tell him three times, and then immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Verse 17 says, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this vision which he'd seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, which makes me question if they were men, because they stopped and asked for directions, they appeared at the gate. So Peter is wrestling with this vision. He's greatly perplexed. But God's going to work with him. God's going to unpack exactly what he meant. And Peter does something great here. Even though he doesn't totally get it, he understands, hey, I'm not supposed to associate with people who aren't Jewish because they're seen as second-class citizens. They're impure. They're unfit to worship God. 
until they become Jewish. He knows this, but he goes ahead and he goes with these guys. And he gets some other guys to go with him, some other Jewish Christ followers. And they go to the house of Cornelius. And somewhere along the way on this journey, Peter gets it. The light bulb comes on, and Peter grasps what God has taught him. So he shows up at Cornelius' house, and he shares it with everybody. In verse 28, he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. What's he doing? That's what he's doing right there. He says, And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So Peter gets it. He gets what God is trying to teach him. And since he now has this audience there at Cornelius' house, he just goes for it. And he preaches the true gospel to these guys. And what do you know? They receive grace. They begin a relationship with God that's by grace through faith in Jesus. Here's how it happens, starting in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, which words? He's sharing the gospel, the true gospel. It says the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Now, all the Jewish guys that Peter brought along were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had now been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were speaking with tongues. These are foreign guys who now have the ability to speak a language that they didn't know. That's what that means. And they're exalting God. And so Peter answered this great rhetorical question, well, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just like we did can he? He's saying they received grace the same way we did. They got the Holy Spirit, and they didn't have to become Jewish. So Peter hangs out there for a while, but eventually he heads back to Jerusalem, and the news beats him there because somebody's posted it on the internet, Gentiles become Christ followers. So when Peter gets home, what's the first thing these guys from the circumcision party come up and ask? The very first thing they say, it's in chapter 11 and verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men? And ate with them? That's their argument here. That's the thing that they get all up in arms about. This incredible thing has just happened. God has just delivered on this promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis. You're going to be the father of the nations. This is the thing we all have to look forward to as Christ followers. You see it in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Because of Christ's death and burial and resurrection, that passage says Jesus has purchased for God with his blood Men from where? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus has made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is a very big deal that Peter's been involved in. Peter has grasped something that's just absolutely incredible, and the Jewish guys are upset that Peter ate with some Gentiles. This is one of the things that Peter does right in Scripture. This is a shining moment for Peter. Here in Acts 11, I wish he would just tell those guys, you know, shut up. The Holy Spirit showed up. These new Christ followers, they're our brothers in Christ. They don't have to become Jewish. What do you care who I ate with? Peter nails it here. So the question we have to ask is, what happens in Galatians 2? How can Peter, who got this new thing so entirely right in Acts chapter 10, come along and blow it so royally here in Galatians chapter 2? And I don't know the answer, but, you know, the weird thing is, I'm glad that he did. Peter blowing it here in our passage today should be a little comforting to us. It's a little comforting to me at this time in my life because it helps me realize I'm not always going to get it right. 
We're going to mess up in this life. You look at verse 13 of Galatians 2 again. Peter backs away from the Gentiles. What's the result? The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. You heard that argument against Christianity before? Invite somebody to go to church with you. They say, I don't want to go to the church. Church is full of hypocrites. Yes. Yes, it is. I'm one of them. There's not a church on this planet that's made up of people that isn't full of them. And sadly, we see from this passage, a life that's filled with hypocrisy is contagious. It was for Peter here in Antioch. I mean, I know for a fact that I've been a hypocrite before. The very core of hypocrisy is when I don't practice what I preach. That's the deal. It's not that I change my belief. It's that I don't do what I say that I believe. And I know I've done it. I know as a church we can do this. We, we can sin this way as a church. We would all sit around and say how much we love the gospel. Oh, I'm so passionate about the gospel. But then we never go and share the gospel. And we're hypocrites. If as a church we'd talk about how passionate we are for a kingdom that's full of every tribe and tongue and nation, but then we want to go to a church where everybody looks just like us, we're hypocrites. If that's the deal, we need to examine our hearts. We need to confess our sin, and we need to live differently because we can become contagious in our hypocrisy. And God is really teaching me something on this right now because I know personally I'm really struggling with that desire to measure up. I'm struggling with a desire to please men. Maybe the same way Peter struggled here in our passage. And the reality is when we have a desire to compare ourselves so that we can look good compared to somebody else, it's a pretty easy slide to revert back to law keeping because at least we can measure that. Then the law becomes comforting because we can control it. Well, I don't do that. Oh, I'd never do that. I certainly don't do that. And it's so easy to compare ourselves. You know, I spend 15 minutes in prayer every day. John, I don't think John prays. You know, I lead my family every morning in a family devotional. I don't even think Bob has a quiet time. Goodness, really? <laughs> Those are the kind of questions we're going to ask? That's the standard of measure that we want to use? No. There's better questions to ask. Am I growing in my Christ-likeness? Am I using the gifts that God has given me for His glory? Those are the questions I need to ask, not how am I doing compared to somebody else. And the fact that Peter messes this up can really teach us something. I know it teaches me something. Here's our application throughout Scripture. When Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus, Peter is a beast. Peter walks on water. He's the leader of the apostles. But what happens when Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus? Peter sinks. <laughs> One of the most troubling passages for me in all of Scripture. Peter at the crucifixion denies he even knows Jesus three times. A passage. That passage tears me up when I read it because I think, how many times in my life have I pretended I didn't know Jesus? Here in Galatians chapter 2, Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. He forgets what God has taught him in Acts chapter 10. We can't do that, church. We just can't. What does the Bible plead with us to do? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In part, it instructs us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How will we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
Paul says something very similar in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you're a Christ follower, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Paul's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus, not on the things that are on the earth. Don't compare yourself, for you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When I'm drifting, we sang that song earlier, I love that hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. When I'm in that spot, what do I need to do? i got to fix my eyes on Jesus. I need to run to Him. I need to run to where the cure is. I need to surround myself with people who will love me and encourage me and pray for me and love me enough to challenge me if I'm doing something goofy. I need those people who will come and say, hey James, I don't think you're practicing what you preach in that situation. I need to meditate on Jesus and run the race with endurance, but I'm a hypocrite. And so sometimes I struggle. And sometimes when I struggle, I run back to the law so I can get a few more MRIs taken, even though they're powerless to save me. But I do it so I can feel better by comparison. I run back to the MRI instead of running to Jesus. That's what Peter did here in Antioch. There's no question in it. And as soon as we do that, well, then we're crushing the true gospel. That's why Paul confronts Peter, because in his hypocrisy, Peter throws the gospel under the bus. Finish up, look at verses 14 and 15. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes this, But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, and now we know that's the thing that fires Paul up, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He says, we're Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. You don't have to dig too hard to figure out what Paul's trying to say to Peter here. It's pretty straightforward. The tricky part for us is in the application. He says, hey, Peter, you're Jewish. You were born a Jew. You've always been a Jew. And you know that you can't 100% obey the law all the time. If you can't do it, how are you going to ask these Gentile guys, these guys who don't even know the law, how are you going to ask them to do it? And then Paul gets a little sarcastic. I always like this. He says, we're Jews by nature, not sinners like the Gentiles. And he's trying to get Peter to understand that by Peter's actions there in Antioch, Peter was sinning. He was causing these others to stumble. And because of it, Paul's motivated to publicly rebuke Peter because what Peter did had resulted in this public scandal. Now, the tricky part of Paul's rebuke is in the application because Paul's been making this case, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by keeping the law. It can't save us. And then he looks at Peter and says, but you need to act in a certain way. So before he said we can't act in a way to be saved, now he's telling Peter, you need to act in a certain way. So if our interpretation of the law is this, well, the law says do this and don't do that, which it does. I mean, we, we see that clearly in Scripture. There's no denying it. Well, then it's a little bit confusing to say, but the true gospel is not like that. But... <laughs> When you receive the gift of salvation, then you better do this and not do that. And it's a very good thing that the letter doesn't end here <laughs> because Paul's going to address this. This is what the rest of the letter covers. He's going to explain how loving the gospel will lead us to walking in the Spirit. Again, he calls it keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. If we do that, then as Christ followers, we can live lives of freedom. We can live lives of abundance. And we don't do those things to earn salvation. 
They're about abundance. But the reality is when we do that, when we make an effort to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, when we're led and guided by the Holy Spirit to an outsider, it may look like we're living the lives of law keepers. But again, there's nothing wrong with the law when we understand its purpose and its role in relationship with grace. Read throughout the Old Testament, and you'll see King David talking about the law. And it, it sounds so beautiful. He talks about how much he loves it. Talks about how the law is sweet to him. It's like honey on his lips. How he lies in bed at night and meditates on the law. And maybe we think, well, that's weird. You know, because we don't talk like that. But as Christ followers, we should live like that. We shouldn't ask the law to do something it's not designed to do. I understand that for sure. But we can allow the law to guide us into a place where there's joy, abundance in the Lord. I'm going to give you one quick example on this as we close. You know what the seventh commandment is? Got it memorized in order. Do you know that one? It's in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, I'm a married guy, so this one can apply to me. What are the ways I could apply that commandment in my life to show that I want to live in abundance? I want to bring glory to God. I want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Well, here's one way. I could just try very hard to not break that commandment. I could walk around with blinders on and make sure I don't talk to women or look at women. And I could walk around and just kind of repeat that mantra over and over again. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. And if I did that, here's the guarantee, I'd detest that law. That law would not be like honey on my lips whatsoever. And would I be living in the abundance that God desires for me? No. Or here's the other thing, and this, by the grace of God, is what I try to do and apply in his word to my life, which is I think every day about how God has blessed me with my wife. I thank him every day that she is so much more beautiful than I deserve. I try every day to grow in my relationship with her and know more about her and love her more every day. And when I do that, why would I ever stop to think about committing adultery? The reality is I don't. And I wouldn't. But am I obeying that commandment? Am I being led by the Spirit? Am I living in the abundance that God desires for me? Or am I a law keeper? Am I a law keeper? Or do I understand grace? See, this is why I'm so fired up about teaching through this book of Galatians. I want us as a church to understand grace. In our passage today, is that what Peter does? Does he live in freedom and fullness? No. He says he was fearful and hypocritical. So clearly, Peter is living out of step with the true gospel. Now, thankfully, and, and we'll see more of this next week, and we know for sure from correlating Scripture, Peter responds well to this rebuke. He doesn't get upset and write Paul off for coming and publicly confronting him. By the time the Jerusalem council rolls around, Peter's there. He's in Paul's corner. But starting in verse 16 next week, we'll see Paul continue this rebuke of Peter and build on it and explain for us what justification is. But as we close today, there's there's an application question. There's a bunch of them in here. But there's one for sure. Do we understand what the role of the law is? Do we see its value as a diagnostic tool? And when we view it correctly, it can lead us into fullness and lead us into love in the law. The law then can be a guide where we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, live these lives of freedom and abundance. Or do we misunderstand the law? 
And we just keep running back to it, getting more and more MRIs that reveal the same thing. Wow, I've got a sin issue. See, sin is not what we do. It's who we are. It's why we need grace. We need a cure. And the MRI can't cure us. So we need to run to Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Him because He's the cure. We need to understand what the offer of grace does for us. That's what gives us the cure for our sin issue. Then we can stop running to compare ourselves to others and try and feel good about ourselves. We can just rest in Jesus. We can live in step with the Spirit, experience the abundance, and understand the role and the value of the law in our life. That's what we're going to do. We're going to continue walking through this book of Galatians so that we can grasp this better. We'll continue pursuing what a real understanding of grace does for us. Let me close our time in prayer today. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to see Paul so passionate about the gospel that he'll rebuke Peter when he starts to mess with it. God, give us a heart to do that, to to be so in love, so passionate with the good news of Jesus that if somebody messes with it, those are, are fighting words to us. God, will stand up and defend it. God, help us to learn and apply what role the law has in our lives, not to, to make us slaves to law-keeping, to give us freedom to live in abundance. God, that's your desire for us. God, I pray for myself. I pray for us as a church. We wouldn't keep running back to the MRI. We know what the problem is. God, we would run to you. We would fix our eyes on you because you're the cure. God, we love you so much. Just ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen.